Hello folks, welcome back. I'm your host Simon Ward. This is the High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast. Today marks the 300th episode of the podcast, the very first of which was released in September 2017 and it was a 17-minute call with physiotherapist Alison Rose. And since that time, we have published an episode every single Wednesday for five years and eight months and never missed one week. There have been over 655,000 downloads, which means that on average, there are 2,200 downloads for each episode. And I'd like to say thank you to every single one of you who's listened, whether it today's your first one or you've listened to them all since the beginning. My goal now is the same as it was for that first episode, to share real-world advice that will help you improve your human and athletic performance. And for that reason, I'm also extremely grateful to every one of our guests. I've spoken with world Olympic champions, eminent scientists, authors, business leaders, entrepreneurs, and they've all been so generous in sharing their knowledge and wisdom that have helped me and hopefully you learn something new each week. Of course, there are always some guests or episodes that are more popular, and today's episode is our most popular ever, a rerun of the conversation I had back in 2019 with Dr. Phil Maffetone. In this conversation, we chat about everything around his math training method, including how to calculate your own personal math heart rate, why math training really works, what to do when it isn't, why you should avoid refined sugars, fartlet training, and much more. So if you haven't heard this before, I know you'll like it. And if you have, please remind yourself of Phil's insight to human health and athletic performance. So buckle up and let's go. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Phil Maffetone, our most popular guest ever. Simon, thank you. It's great to be with you again. Yeah, well, and this is going to be our 100th episode, Phil. So I thought it was perfect for our sort of significant anniversary that we had our most popular guest. Well, I'm honored. Um, I thought you were going to say it's our 100th anniversary, and I thought, <laughs> gee, he looks pretty good for that age. <laughs> I, I, hope, I hope people are saying that to me if I make it to 100. But, um, <laughs> we, uh, before you came on, I, I took the trouble of um, writing out to my group and my tribe uh, and asking if they had any questions for you. And, of course, I was overwhelmed, so we've, um, we, we've sort of um, condensed some of them because some of the questions were very similar. And uh, we've got we've really got three categories, Bill. We've got training, um, obviously using the Mathtone method. We've got general nutrition, and we've got race day nutrition. But as I said, the previous podcast we did was our most popular. It generated a lot of interest. A lot of the guys have read read um, your book, um, the, the big yellow book. Yeah. Um, They've also read, uh, a lot of them have read Brad and uh, Mark's uh, Primal Endurance, which where you're obviously referenced very heavily and who, to whom you're, uh, you're a bit of a guru, I think. Uh, and one of the guys who uh, listened to the podcast and was really heavily invested in Primal Endurance sent me this comment as well, along with his question. He said, please thank Dr. Phil for the last podcast you two did. And his comment, which was, if you were addicted to alcohol, you would not have a drink on the weekend. So why would you have a cake if addicted to processed carbs? And he said he, he's into ultra running now. He said since adopting that attitude to processed carbs, 
Um, it's worked very, very well for me. He's lost weight organically, hasn't tried. His performances have gone up. He says, I can recover so much more quickly now. I get no soreness after a 40-mile run. Basically, yeah. uh, he says, thank you. Thank you for that advice. It's made, it made a huge difference. Well, uh, you're welcome. And I, 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 I love hearing those kinds of stories. The feedback um, from people really helps guide me uh, along the way. Um, you know, in the in the early years, uh, when I would talk to a group of athletes, and I would say you you got to cut out sugar and only eat natural carbohydrates, they'd say, well, "You're are you crazy?" Everybody knows that athletes need to eat a lot of sugar, and so I I thought, okay, well, I need to present that information a little differently then, and, and which I did, uh, but you know, I I'm uh, I'm in the middle of writing um, an article, and I don't know if I'm going to make it into a scientific article and submit it to a journal or just one of my regular articles that I release every week. And it's, it's about sugar as a drug. And there's so much good evidence now that sugar could be classified as a drug, especially because of its addictive nature. And, you know, we have alcohol as a drug, we have uh, caffeine, we have tobacco, we have cannabis, we have all these other things that are so-called natural drugs. And of course, a lot of the pharmaceutical prescriptions and over-the-counter drugs originated in plants. So, you know, and when we look at the mental uh, aspects of drugs and drug addiction, um, there's certain criteria, many of which sugar meets quite well, including the, the, the cravings of sugar, the withdrawal symptoms, um, and the damage done by, by sugar. So uh, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's a very serious condition, very serious problem that uh, um, we all have to deal with. And boy, I had to deal with it early in my life, and it was not easy, I'll, I'll tell you that. I think that, you know, and I've, I experienced this, in fact, when I, when I knew um, we were going to be having the, the call, I was just looking around at my cycling colleagues at the weekend, at the sort of things that they were ordering. And one of the guys ordered a, a huge hot chocolate topped off with whipped cream and those little marshmallows. And then he had a piece of chocolate cake. I took a photograph, which I might put up um, when I referenced our call today. And I, I, I hate to think about how many grams of sugar would have been in front of him there but when you look at this guy six foot one he's probably the fastest cyclist in our group um he's probably got six or seven percent body fat and i know that a lot of athletes like that will think well what harm is it doing to me it's not i'm not any, i'm not putting on any weight but you know there's the there's the the insulin insensitivity there's the blood sugar spikes there's the you know the the inflammatory effect of all of those foods and how that gets in the way of good recovery, all of those things are harming all the training he's doing. Without a doubt. And, you know, the question isn't, you know, how good is he or how, how can he be the fastest guy on the team or whatever? The question is, how much better would he be if he ate well? And there's, there's no question about that fact that when you eat a healthier diet, uh, you recover better, your chronic inflammation uh, is controlled, you have less injuries, you burn more fat, of course, that 
contributes to more energy during training and racing. Uh, you sleep better, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, which, which circles around nicely to that first comment we got from the guy who said that, you know, the huge changes that he's experienced since giving up sugar and specific comments were, I can do a, a 40 mile ultra race now and I don't feel sore the next day. And that's got to, you know, the, the, the removal of refined sugars from his diet has got to be a contributory factor to that speedy recovery. Without a doubt. So let, let's go on to the training questions then, Phil. And, and I thought um, this question goes right back to the very start of math is please can you reiterate how to determine your math and what the math test demonstrates. So maybe we should talk, um, we should separate those two out, outline what a math test might be afterwards, but talk about this math score, which I understand to be 180 minus age. Is that correct? Yeah, 180 minus the age is the sort of the, the unofficial title. Uh, we're talking about the MAF heart rate, which is the heart rate that I recommend people train at or below in order to build up the aerobic system in a maximum way. We want to maximize our aerobic fitness. We want to do that before we add any uh, racing or other high-intensity training. So how do we do that most effectively? There's a certain heart rate that will allow you to do that. and um, and that heart rate will, as we'll talk later, also be useful to evaluate your your um, progression because you don't want to assume that you're benefiting. You want to measure objectively some uh, some some. You want to you want to be able to 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 measure it objectively. And we'll we'll come back to that. But the the 180 heart rate, the 180 formula, is what's used to come up with the MAF heart rate. And in the beginning, um, I actually called it maximum aerobic pace because mostly I had I had runners because in the seventies there were not many cyclists or uh, triathlon hadn't really come across the country to the east coast. And I, I heard about this strange event uh, way way west, and you know I thought that sounds great because I cycled and I swam and I was a runner, but. Um, I, ha I had so many runners that I called it the maximum aerobic pace, which meant how fast can you run at this particular heart rate? And it just, it was conflicting too much uh, with a physiological term, maximum aerobic power. So I thought, okay, let's change it to something else. And I happened to be seeing a cyclist that day. And um, afterwards, I thought, yeah, let's just call it... Um, function maximum aerobic function and then it was like weeks later somebody said oh yeah that's a that's a great uh you know great it, it it's the first three letters of your last name and i hadn't even realized it honestly but uh I, i've since um you know as the the years went by up to the early 80s and into the mid 80s um two other terms came into use in physiology uh one is aerobic threshold which a lot of people don't uh, know much, if anything, about. They're always used to hearing anaerobic threshold. And also fat max. Fat max is the point in intensity where you're burning the most amount of fat. Well, as I immediately found out, the MAF heart rate, aerobic threshold, and fat max were one and the same. 
that's when I was starting to, to go into labs and, and measuring athletes on the, um, the, the equipment, the treadmill tests that we're, we're all familiar with, where we can measure oxygen and carbon dioxide and come up with fat burning. And it was interesting that my, my uh, assessment process to determine this MAF heart rate uh, came about before I knew any of this. And I did it based on observation and an examination of the athlete in my office. And then I'd go to the track and watch them run at, at different heart rates. And I thought, okay, this heart rate uh, shows me that their gait is really good. But when they go one or two beats above that, their gait becomes slightly irregular, noticeably irregular. And if they had another beat or two, it's much more irregular. So I'm going to bring them back to that heart rate where their gait is very stable, the most stable with the most amount of, of, uh, of intensity without going over. So uh, that, was, that was the beginning of coming up with this uh, MAF heart rate. Um, and it wasn't until um, a little while later, a couple of years, I think, um, when I was lecturing on this and someone asked how they could figure out this MAF heart rate. And I was a bit embarrassed because I really didn't have an answer. Um, and I had to, you know, think for the next few days, you know, how can we come up with a, um, the same number, basically? And I knew that it was, it was simply a question of mathematics. And I thought about it for a while and ended up thinking of, well, maybe we could find a starting point. And, you know, I, I literally came up with 180 in the shower. And uh, I realized, okay, if I subtract their age from 180, it gets me in the ballpark. And then I said, okay, we need to look at their health and their fitness separately and make adjustments because that's what I did with, with athletes. I said, well, I'm going to make an adjustment because this athlete has a lot of injuries or that athlete um, uh, is performing really well and is uninjured. So, you know, we're going to lower or raise the heart rate. And then I'd compare that with my gait analysis and so forth. But I, so I came up with four categories. So the 180 formula, which people can just go to my website, and you, you may have posted it too. Um, the 180 formula is a way for people to personalize their training heart rate, that MAF heart rate. And so they subtract their age from 180, and that's, that's the only generality associated with this approach. What they do next is find the category that they fit into. They want to personalize this even further. And, and if, they're, if they're in rehab or they're overtrained or if they're burned out or if they're doing well or if they're in between, they're on medication, et cetera, et cetera. They, they will be told in the formula that they need to subtract another 10 beats from 180 minus the age, subtract five beats, don't subtract anything, keep 180 minus the age the same, or add five beats. And it's really very simple, and we won't go through all the, the categories, but the, the key is being honest. Uh, if, if you really are injured, you need to be honest. I'm, I'm injured. And therefore, I'm in this category, or I'm not injured, 
uh, and my performance is improving. Is it really improving? Okay, if it is, then I'm here. If it's not really improving, then I'm over there. Very, very important to have that honesty factor. I guess for most people, there's no harm in them actually going a little bit slower, is there? It seems that, that from my observations, that most people train too hard, regardless of what mode of training. And so getting them to train a bit easier, even though it doesn't feel like they're achieving much, um, isn't, isn't, uh, isn't, isn't going to do them any harm. And in fact, if you look at the physiological data about where those key endurance um, factors get most stars, um, your body burning more fat, developing more mitochondria, um, more capillaries, all of those things happen at around sort of 70 to 75% of intensity or 65 to 75, which is exactly where or around about where math puts you anyway. It does. And, and yes, you're right. You want to be conservative. And when you're, when you're looking at the 180 formula, if you're not sure, if you think, well, maybe I'm in this category, maybe I'm in that category. If you're not sure, choose the one that gives you the lowest heart rate because you can't go wrong. It's, uh, you know, when you look at over time, sure, you may start out being slow training at the NAF heart rate, although some people don't train all that slow in the beginning, but you eventually get faster and you, you eventually get faster than you would be racing, say, an Ironman race if you were performing your best Ironman event. So it, it's very important to be conservative because uh, also because you may, three months, four months down the road, you may find out, hey, I'm not really improving. What's wrong? And one of the things wrong is that you chose the wrong heart rate and now you've got to make an adjustment and kind of you've wasted, you know, two, three, four months, which is frustrating. I do sense that when people begin using the math method, and that math heart rate that it is you use the word frustration there it is frustrating for them because it feels as though they're running slower now, now in my mind it's it's not that they're running slowly it's it's because they're running slower than they were before which was probably too fast and was probably the reason why they got injured more frequently or they got ill more frequently because they were just overloading their system by a little bit over a period of time until it broke um this way it seems like they're running slowly, and I, and I know that some people have to walk. But my argument there is that this is a reflection on, you know, the work and the output of your engine. And exactly, it's whether it's, you're, it's, you know, whether you're walking or running, that's what your engine's doing, and it's probably because you're not that efficient either at that aerobic phase. Exactly, it's a reflection of your aerobic state, and if you have a poor aerobic system, you you're you're not going to be able to run close to what you typically do because uh, what you typically do is rely on your anaerobic system and and that's not how you train for endurance. We need to build that aerobic system and um, and yeah, and the people that have to uh, train slow or even walk the hills uh, often think, well, this A, this is not helping me, B, this must be harmful to my body. It's not harmful for your body. It's, it's, it's going back to the beginning to develop your body in a more efficient way. And as time goes by, you'll, you'll end up running faster and faster. And it won't be that long until you start complaining that you have to run too fast because now you've built your aerobic system 
up to this great level. And I'll tell you, I have seen athletes progress, you know, from a, a nine minute pace down to a, a seven minute pace or a six minute pace, or uh, in, in Mark Allen's case, from uh, from eight thirty pace to five twenty pace at the same heart rate over a relatively short period of time. So um, th- this is, you know, one of the one of the long term goals. Short term, you'll start seeing these changes relatively quick. You'll see it on the bike uh, quicker than you will on the run. Well, that that goes round to one of the questions I've got there. Bill, is that um, a guy that was using this said he felt like he was having to work fairly hard while running to actually get up to his map heart rate. Um, and he, he'd assumed that MAF training was all about working at low intensity. Um, what I'm getting from you there is that he's clearly just very efficient at running and it's not about the intensity because oh, I suppose MAF is low intensity, but it's not about the pace he's running about. It's about, again, it's about the effort level that his, his engine is... is exactly, exactly. He's, he's running at a lower heart rate and the fact that his aerobic system is fairly well developed and he's he's got to go at a relatively fast pace is, is somewhat secondary. Um, but it gives him an opportunity to develop it further um, by doing uh, aerobic intervals, for example, where he trains a lot slower than his MAF heart rate maybe 10, 15 beats or 20 beats slower. And then he'll take a period of time where he'll get to that MAF heart rate. And now he's moving along at a pretty, pretty fast pace for a certain amount of time. I like doing fartlek workouts. And then your brain says, okay, let's, let's jog for a little bit here. It's a, it's a great way to uh, develop that system even further. So you're talking about where your brain says it's okay to go at this pace. Are you suggesting there that when you do fartlek, it's it's unstructured, so you don't have a set period of two minutes hard and then a minute easy. You just you just go until your brain says I need to rest. Exactly. And, and, and then you, and then you keep running easy until your brain says okay, I'm ready to go hard again. Exactly. You know, you and I are coaches, but but you and I and everyone else has the best coach, the ultimate coach, which is the brain, and our brain says okay. Do this, do that. Why would our brain want to follow some stupid program that says do this for two minutes, do that for one minute? Maybe that's not what your body needs. Or maybe your body needs that for the first round and then after three or four intervals, you're, you need to change. And so I, I like, I like um, that intuitive development, that um, uh, brain-directed workout, whether it's on the track or on the road now, the problem with that also is that uh, sports is a is a social phenomenon. We we you know we train with other people quite often. Um, I don't, but um, most people do. And when you're training with other people, number one, it's almost impossible to be individual to to personalize your training, and number two, it's competitive, and and that makes for some problems for for many people mm. i just wanted to go back we, we were talking just a moment ago about um when people start using math and they're having to uh, maybe they're having to walk and it's all uh, it's all about the efficiency of their aerobic system if they are consuming far too much refined sugar and far too many processed foods 
and that's obviously pushing their body towards carbohydrate burning rather than fat burning. Will that have an impact on how their body responds to math training as well? Will their heart rate be too high for what's perceived to be quite a low effort? It sure will. And and when we talk about um, maximizing the aerobic system, developing endurance to the point where our aerobic system can take us to faster and faster paces, um, in order to do that, we need additional fuel. We need almost unlimited fuel, and fat is our most important and unlimited fuel for endurance. So if we don't have the fuel necessary to fuel those aerobic muscle fibers, which burn fat for energy, then we're, we're, we're going to uh, go out and uh, find our MAF heart rate and uh, start training, complain we're going too slow, and a month later realize that we're still going at the same pace. And that's a common problem. And the most common reason for that is that people are not burning enough fat. And the reason for that is that they're consuming too much refined carbohydrate. Mm. I guess that um, if somebody has a stressful lifestyle, they're not getting enough sleep, they're constantly in that sympathetic nervous system rather than parasympathetic, that's also going to have um, a place of restriction on the benefit from math training. Without a doubt. You know, uh, yeah. MAF is not a... a a, a training program and or, or an athletic program. It's a way to obtain maximum health and fitness uh, by personalizing your your lifestyle. And so the requirement for sleeping, the requirement for uh, recovery from your workouts, the requirement to consume healthy food, uh, manage your stress, et cetera, et cetera, is 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 a vital part of all. If you want to be the best athlete you can, you want to be the best human you can. And um, there's so many facets of that, you can't skip any of them. No, I'm just, I'm just thinking about the, uh, the, the comments from people who've been running or cycling at their, using their math heart rate for several months but not seeing any progress. And when that starts to happen, you know, when they do the math tests, which perhaps we can come back to, is, it, you know, perhaps they need to be looking at what other um, influencing factors are, are limiting their development. Exactly. Look at look at the you know all the physical, biochemical, and mental emotional stresses, and they can accumulate. So that you know that bad pair of shoes you're running in, and that dental problem that you're not you know taking care of like you know you should. Uh, accumulates along with work stress and the weather and you know that that has an effect on our body so the game with stress is to eliminate the ones we can eliminate and eliminating sugar uh, is really uh, at the top of the list mm. let's just cover that math test then Phil um, how long should we be running at our math or riding or swimming at our math heart rate to get a good idea um is, is 15 minutes enough is, or should we be extending that to something like 30 or 45 minutes well the, the the whole workout should include a warm-up where your heart rate is even lower than the maf heart rate you gradually take 12 uh to 15 minutes to to hit your maf heart rate now you're in the middle of your workout and you maintain that 
for a certain period of time. And then uh, 12 to 15 minutes before the workout ends, you begin to slow down and do just the opposite, bring your heart rate down. You won't get it to where it started, but you'll be near that. That's called a cool down. And it's really the first stage of, of recovery, very important. So if you have an hour, uh, and this is why I don't, I don't like uh, training by miles. I like training by time. If you have an hour to work out, you're going to spend uh, some of the time warming up, some of the time cooling down, and the 30 or, or 40 minutes in between at the MAF heart rate. Same with, with cycling. Okay, so you, you, could, you could go for 30 minutes and just see what distance you could cover at that heart rate. Um, I, I suppose if you have a favorite route that's three or four or five miles for a run, you could do that at your math heart rate and um, see how long it takes you to cover that as an alternative. Sure. And, you know, an hour is an hour. Um, but if you, if you have a, a, a four-mile run you do every day and you are now training by heart rate um, and you, you want to train four miles – well, it's going to take you less and less time to train four miles. So now you're cutting yourself short as the days go by or as the weeks go by, certainly. And so it's another reason to use time in your training rather than miles. It's nice to pay attention to miles. And the MAF test uh, requires that you monitor your pace. So I go uh, eight minutes per mile uh, or I go you know, six minutes per mile. And we need to we need to monitor that because the MAF test, uh, where you use the MAF heart rate, and you go out and and you with a GPS uh, tracker now we can we can do it on a, on our regular runs if they're somewhat flat, but if they're really hilly, it makes the MAF test um, a little bit inaccurate because of the the lag with the heart rate and so forth. Um, so. Uh, we want to we want to warm up and then run uh, at least a mile, maybe three, maybe four or five in, in people who are putting in more miles. Um, and we warm up and then we run at the MAF heart rate and we see what our mile splits are. And if today we could run a mile in nine minutes, then in a month we should be able to run that same mile faster, noticeably faster. Um, and if, if we don't, uh, there's a problem. And some people, especially who have uh, high amounts of stress, it could take two months to see a, a definitive change. But um, it's not unusual to see a, a, a good change in pace, getting faster at that same MAF heart rate in a, a period of one month. Uh, just to... Just a few minutes ago, Phil, you were talking about how you observed your athletes running on the track and you noticed that when they pushed the pace up that there was a change in their gait and so you wanted them to, to ease the pace back a bit so that they were running at that efficient sort of controlled um, gait. We have a question here where somebody was saying that he, he, he was asking how the muscular and skeletal systems are affected by slowing down our runs, mainly because this in theory will change our running style so much. But my understanding from what you're saying is that actually we want to develop an efficient running style at that slow pace first. Exactly. We, we develop our muscles uh, based on intensity. So running at a very slow pace or walking uses certain muscle fibers, the, the neuro 
muscular, the the um, the neuromuscular system um, fires certain nerves that contract muscles, and it enables us to walk. If we start jogging a little bit, other muscle fibers are enlisted because other nerves are fired to enlist them. And as we get faster and faster, we enlist more nerves and muscle fibers. Um, but if we never developed those early fibers, then we feel inadequate. We feel like this is bizarre. This is this feels weird. This can't be right. This this can't be healthy. Um, and you know, jogging at a really slow pace or trying to uh, maneuver this this gray area between walking fast and jogging slow, you know, it 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 has a certain gait to it. That doesn't mean the gait is necessarily bad. It could be a, a very good gait for what you have. Uh, but as you develop those muscles um, and get faster, uh, you keep you keep improving the pace and the gait continues to uh, get better until you hit a higher intensity where uh, now your gait uh, changes a little bit impaired. And does that mean doing interval workouts or, or you know, faster, higher intensity training is going to be associated with an impaired gait? Without a doubt. You may not notice it because it's harder to notice when you're running faster. But, man, I love going to, to, to races and watching, especially the runners, uh, and especially by mid-race, most of them have gone out too fast, so now their their gates are trashed. Um, and you know, we we've all seen it at the end of a marathon where people are struggling. But you know, it, it to the trained eye, you can see it as soon as an athlete hits that uh, uh, level of intensity above the MAF heart rate. Hey. I've definitely not done as many lab tests as you have, Phil, but when I have been observing and they do a lactate test, so they're picking blood lactates at varying speeds and intensity on the treadmill, and we see somebody, say, running at 10 kilometers an hour, which might be fairly pedestrian for them, um, when, and when we're doing the gas analysis, they seem to be less economical at those slow speeds than they are at what would be their normal self-selected speed of, say, 12 or 13 k an hour and then obviously as, as the intensity and the speed goes up the, you know their their um, economy gets worse and their blood lactate increases and and yet for most of those people being tested they're probably doing Ironman or half Ironman and their actual race pace is going to be close to that 10 kilometers an hour so if they can use a math training methodology that has them running at a slower speed and becoming more efficient to that that's playing right into their hands for becoming a better long distance athlete without a doubt i think um uh well there's a lot to say about um all these measures like lactate i used lactate for years i i used the earliest lactate meters that we we could take out to the track with us I, you know, I've done the, the treadmill tests in the lab. I've done uh, the, uh, the gas exchange, um, the, not the gas exchange, but the tanks that, you know, fortunately. Oh, Douglas bags. Yeah. The, well, the, yeah, those types of things. Uh, fortunately, they didn't last too long. 
um, in in the trendy world uh, because you you just couldn't run with these things on your back. Uh, I've used everything. I've done every uh, blood and urine and saliva measure. Um, and from a performance standpoint, from the standpoint of aerobic development, including lactate, and I've learned to, to mostly ignore lactate. It's a nice uh, research indicator. But I, I, I just don't have any use for it anymore because there's so many variables associated with lactate, including dietary factors. Uh, the, the MAF test uh, is just uh, a much better and a more objective method of assessing one's progress on a, on a regular basis. Even, even during the time when you, okay, I built my base, now I'm going to do some high-intensity training. Okay, now my race season is beginning. You still want to do the MAF test because if you end up in your race season and your MAF test starts to slow down, you're in trouble, and you want to know that. You want to say, oh, hey, what's going on here? I'm, I'm losing my aerobic function. I'm losing my endurance. That's not good. I just started my race uh, season. Well, it may mean that you need to cut back on your total training. It may mean you need to cut back on your, uh, your speed work. It may mean that you need more sleep than you were getting. Uh, it, it, the sleep is interesting. You know, they, they've done this in different sports, but when athletes are given the opportunity to sleep in so they don't have to be awake at a certain time and they'll tend to sleep in longer than usual, their performance increases beginning that day. So, um, you know, there's so many things that, that one needs to think about, but the MAF test throughout the year year after year, is really a very important test to, uh, to maintain. Well, and the good thing about that, particularly for somebody from Yorkshire, Bill, where we have a, um, where we have a reputation for having long pockets and short arms, um, is that the math test is free. You don't have to spend several hundred dollars um, going to the lab uh, and getting the well, test done it, and the results, and it's not invasive either. Not only that, it's not going to the lab. It's going to the lab on a regular basis because having that lab test will tell you something right right there, right now. But what are you like in a month or in two months or in three months? Uh, you really have to go back to the lab and redo that test to see how you are progressing. And so people are going to think twice when they see the cost and maybe the travel component. But then to do that every month... Most people are just not going to do that. And I suppose if they've not had a good night's sleep, as you just mentioned, that, that's going to invalidate the lactate test anyway. The lactate test and the lab test in general. You know, the lab tests are, are great. I, I, love, I love doing research, but we're not talking about research here. We're talking about helping an athlete who wants to perform the best they can. They want to reach their athletic potential. And they want to do it in a way that um, doesn't sacrifice their health. And I, I've, you know, I've, I have spent my career uh, synthesizing all of this stuff so that my list of recommended uh, dietary things, training things, racing things, stress things is not a, a mile long each. 
you know, sure, all these things are important, but let's let's make it uh, let let's prioritize it. Let's what is the hierarchy? What what affects what? Well, sugar can affect the aerobic system. Okay, so that's pretty important. Um, uh, calcium supplements are way down on the list because they are. They're, they're, they just don't play a significant role unless you're calcium deficient. And the number of people who are calcium deficient is close to zero unless you have a, a, a medical condition. That, that brings uh, about an interesting um, mindset then, doesn't it, in, in that you – probably do and I definitely do get asked questions by people about what sports supplements should I be taking and maybe we should be turning it around and saying well, what things can you give up first before you start adding supplements now because I would bet that most of those people have far too much refined sugar in there and processed carbohydrates so removing those from the um, food intake is going to have far more impact on your health and on your performance than adding in some supplement that you can take after training because you can't be bothered to make a real a real meal that's the key is you can't be bothered to make a real meal. Um, this is where we get our nutrients from. All of our nutrients come from the foods we eat, and we should be going out of our way to get the healthiest foods we can. And if we're still not able to quite do that, um, then we start adding dietary supplements. Mm. And the, the, most, the most common one, as an example, is, is fish oil. Uh, healthy uh, fish is a getting to be a very difficult food to find. And then we don't want to cook it because it destroys that EPA, DHA. So the, the inflammatory mechanisms which depend on that EPA, DHA uh, are not going to be as balanced as they should be, as they could be. And so supplementing our diet with fish oil is is a, a really great alternative. Uh, that's that's one of many examples. Maybe we can come back to that in a minute, Phil, because we do have some nutrition questions. But I uh, I have a few more training questions that, that people have posted. One one person here lives in the Middle East where uh, it's very very hot, and he wanted to know how does the heat impact on our long slow runs, um, and probably how does it impact our heart rate? Yeah, I I was in Dubai recently and. Um, it was hot. It was, it was, <laughs> it was tough. It's a stress. It's a weather stress that has a, a, a significant effect on our brain and therefore our body. And so when the temperature goes up and especially when the humidity goes up and especially when there's low pressure, those are three things that often come together in the Northern hemisphere this time of year in the summer, running at our MAF heart rate is going to bring us a slower pace because of that stress. It's a good example of what stress does to the body. So it means um, we should look at a different time of day, if that's possible. Um, when I had my clinic uh, in, in the New York City area, uh, for many years, when, the, when I would see uh, a, a local athlete from the Northeast, that time of year was when we would lower uh, a person's training because the, the weather in, in July and August uh, can be very stressful. And so we would literally plan for that by building up 
training beforehand. And now we have a month or two of much less training, uh, especially in those people who, you know, they have a job, they have a family. They can't just say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to run at, you know, 6 a.m. Um, uh, and of course, the worst thing to do is to say, well, I'm going to get up uh, at 4 a.m., uh, which people often do when they swim. But, you know, I'm going to get up at 4 a.m. because it's, you know, by 6 and 7, it's hot. Okay, so I'm going to sleep two hours less. That doesn't work. Um, so one of the options is to decrease training. And, you know, when you decrease training, I'm, I'm always shocked at, at the fact that people perform better when we reduce their training. It's the taper effect. The taper, which people don't like to do, um, I like a, you know, depending on the event, for, for an Ironman, two to four weeks of tapering, three to four uh, tapering. For a half Ironman, for a marathon, two weeks minimum, three to four maybe. Um, and during that taper process, where you, where you gradually um, perform less and less training and you, you also cut down your intensity, um, the body gets stronger. It's able to, you know, eight hours of sleep is like nine hours of sleep because now you don't have as much. So you can catch up on things. You literally, and we can measure power and show this, you literally get stronger in that taper period. And people, people think, well, my, my competitors, they're all, they're all training. They're not, they're not uh, uh, wimping out. You know, they're, we, we have this obscene, no pain, no gain society, and people click into that when something like tapering comes up or training the aerobic system, slowing down to get faster. Uh, you know, when those conversations come up, um, it's the no pain, no gain that they revert back to because that's sort of a, it's a stress reaction, essentially. Uh, your, friend, your friend Brad and his, his um, long-term racing buddy, Andrew McNaughton, have this conversation uh, during which I think it's Andrew raises this hypothesis that triathletes and endurance athletes are only comfortable when they're in this state of overtraining. And if, if they feel at all fresh, if they have no soreness, then they start panicking and they have to put in a lot of training to get back to this um, overtrained state. So that's almost what you're saying there is people are uncomfortable with feeling fresh, they're uncomfortable with going fast, and they're uncomfortable with resting. Yeah, and the, the, that social component is there. And, you know, when, when we look at the surveys uh, of, of people who go to to gyms, you know, to exercise facilities. And, and the question is, well, why do, you, why do you join a gym? The most common answer is for social reasons. You know, why do you, why do you go, uh, you know, drive 20 minutes to, to get together with this Sunday morning group for a 20-mile run? Well, it's a social thing. Uh, you know, it's like saying, I don't get as much out of it, but it's social. And I like that, you know. I, I don't know. I, I, I take my body and brain too serious for that kind of thing. Sure, social uh, interaction is a healthy thing, but we've got to balance it all. It's interesting. I um, went to observe a racehorse trainer training his horses. He, he galloped them every day, but he only did two times 800 meters up, uh, up a slight incline, which for them at full tilt is probably about 30 seconds worth of work. 
But interestingly, you know, the horses, they probably never complain that it's, oh, I'm having an easy day today. Horses are pack animals, they're social animals. And if you set four of them off running together, they're going to run as hard as they can just to keep up with the other ones. There won't be one lolloping along at the back saying, oh, I, I ran hard yesterday. They'll just run hard every day. But I, were, I was really interested in his almost an extreme version of polarised training. Lots of time spent walking and trotting and then a small section of time every day spent going absolutely full tilt. Um, and then that was it. Yeah, horses are amazing. You know, they are um, anatomically and physiologically very similar to humans. Um, and if you stand them up on their back feet, you see the anatomy part. But physiologically, um, the, the similarities, the heart's a lot bigger and they, are, you know, they max out at 230 beats per thoroughbred. Um, and I worked with horses. I used, um, you know, I, I created a heart monitor specifically for them. And um, it was it was difficult for people, for trainers and owners to, in all the um, arenas, uh, dressage and trotters, uh, thoroughbreds uh, who were racing on the track, uh, to see this slow trotting workout they have this tremendous aerobic system uh that that needs to be trained and when you train it they get injured less which is a, a big problem in in mm -hmm. the industry is is horse injuries are serious conditions very very prevalent um and they and they get faster just like humans yeah interesting how we're disappearing down this uh, down this rabbit <laughs> hole here phil but but it all comes back to the, the same principle of developing the aerobic system. Um, and a bit like Stephen Seeler says, you have to make the cake first. And when you've made the cake, you can put a little bit of icing on the top and eat it. And with the, the, the huge amount of aerobic training at MAF is, is about making the cake. It takes a long time to put those ingredients together and make them. But once you've done that, it doesn't take very long to put the icing on the top and to use it properly. So the principles yep. are in different in different spheres are very similar. Yeah, yeah. I don't like the the cake analogy, but yeah, well, we, no. we we know what we know what what that's all about. But um, that's the discipline of of training, and uh, you know, if you look at all the great athletes who have lasted, this rules out a lot of them, but the ones who have lasted, one thing they have is discipline and Mark, Mark Allen uh, uh, oozed discipline as an athlete. And um, uh, the discipline of it is, is important because it'll, it'll get you through those periods where you're doing things that you're not used to, that you wonder if it's working. And even when you see that you're getting faster, you still, you know, you do your first MAF test after a month and now you're 20 seconds a mile faster and you say, wow, that's a lot. Oh, maybe I could just start doing intervals now. Um, but that discipline becomes really a, a key to the whole thing. Well, you, you've told a story about Mark Allen, how he used to go out training with the group in Boulder and early on in the season he would get dropped because he was disciplined and sticking to his heart rate. And then later on in the year he was faster than everybody. I've heard similar stories about Another athlete who's had success over a long period of time, Craig Alexander, um, yep. demonstrated the same sort of discipline in his training. Yeah, and it's 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 fun to see that. It's it's fun to to see 
uh, how how people respond to it. Other people in the packs. I, I've been in some of those packs in the beginnings of rides, and and you know people are are looking for Mark in the front, and they don't see him, and then they kind of peek back and they see him, and then after a while they say, "Where's Mark?" And then somebody, oh, way back. <laughs> Discipline yeah. is, uh, you know, one of the one of the things that um, too many athletes are uh, missing. Uh, don't know how to develop, and, and a lot of it is education, um, and and frankly, don't have because they allow the social components to kind of take over the no pain no gain component to to take over, and um, that, that's a problem. I have another question here down uh, Bill. I think I think we've probably already answered this one in, in some of the other conversations we've had, but I did a conversation I had a conversation with Dan Plews, who works closely with another of your um, colleagues, uh, Paul Larson. Um, and we were talking about parasympathetic versus sympathetic nervous system. So um sympathetic is fight or flight, parasympathetic is rest and digest. And this person who's asked the question wanted just wanted to hear it from you about the damage that the that, that working too much in that exercise black hole has and the impact it has on the sympathetic nervous system and then the total the total damage that that can cause to the whole of the body's health if we don't then spend enough time in the parasympathetic rest and digest phase. Yeah, um, I, I I love Dan and and Paul. They're both MAF uh, certified coaches founding coaches and um i've done research with them and um, contributed a, a chapter to paul's uh, new book on hit um, um but yeah the, the 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 autonomic nervous system which when you say that you you start turning off a lot of people because they get confused about it. it's basically uh, you know, how our nervous system works. We have a certain balance in our nervous system and that nervous system connects to the hormones that help regulate our training. And when we lose uh, that balance, we run into trouble. So the game is always to, to maintain balance by not training uh, with excessive mileage, not training with excessive intensity, uh, recovering well, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the sympathetic nervous system is how we respond to stress. So when we're hit with a stress, we, we rev up our sympathetic nervous system. Our heart rate goes up. Uh, we become acutely aware of, of what's going on. Think of having an argument with your boss or uh, being cut off in traffic by another driver. Uh, you know, we... we the extreme of sympathetic activity would be rage. Uh, but the beginning of that rage, we may not recognize as rage, but that sympathetic response can be dangerous if we don't recover from it uh, when we can, when it's appropriate, which is usually in this world fairly soon. Uh, we're not chased by lions through the jungle for a long time anymore, luckily. So um, we we have this ability to move away from that sympathetic stress. But the sympathetic stimulation triggers a hormone called cortisol and a, another another 
stress hormone as well. But cortisol, um, when cortisol goes up, our um, other hormones like testosterone and estrogen in both men and women come down. And the last thing you want to do as an athlete is to reduce your testosterone and the testosterone, the uh, testosterone and the, the estrogens as well. But um, that's what happens when we keep cranking up that stress hormone, cortisol. Cortisol is what uh, we overproduce um, in the middle of the night sometimes. 2 a.m., we wake up, we feel like, hey, it's time to wake up. Uh, we think we're waking up to urinate. We're not. We're waking up because our cortisol, cortisone, cortisol is, is being produced from the adrenal glands because we have too much stress. And that's a dangerous sign when that happens. Uh, in addition to interfering with healthy sleep or healthy recovery, um, it's a sign that we're producing too much cortisol, that stress hormone, which interferes with sugar metabolism, with fat metabolism. It stores more fat, especially in our abdomen. Uh, it interferes with brain function. There's a lot of reasons to avoid excess sympathetic stimulation and um, people who have a better aerobic system can do that uh, much better than, than others. So if I'm listening right, if, if you're producing too much cortisol by doing too well, not necessarily by doing too much training, but having too much stress in your life, wherever that, whatever the source of that, because that could be work, it could be travel, it could be environmental. Here in the UK, it's probably Brexit as well. Um, by having too much cortisol in there, it's, it's going to cause impaired sleep. Maybe a lack of ability to get to sleep or um, or something, and it, and it, if you're talking about testosterone and estrogen, then I guess that's going to have some impact on your sex drive as well. Those hormones I mentioned, testosterone and and the estrogens, are are sex hormones, and even though they're produced in the adrenal glands, they're also produced in the sex glands, but um, they are. Our sex hormones. So when when we raise cortisol too often, too much, we lose our sexual desire, and it's a classic uh, question for athletes in the overtraining uh, assessment process. You know, has your has your sex drive been reduced? And um, we not only see it in young people, but we see it in in um, in people who are in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, where aging, where there's a normal decrease in testosterone and, and the estrogens, especially in women going through menopause. But if we amplify that reduction in sex hormones with the high cortisol, then it really makes itself uh, more obvious in terms of uh, lower quality of life, not just uh, reductions in. Uh, uh, sexual activity, but um, you know, muscle function, a, a lot of things. It's not we don't compartmentalize these hormones. The sex hormones do a lot of other things as well, including fertility. So um, that's a it's a common problem, and I've I've measured plenty of sex hormones in athletes over the years, and uh, that that classic pattern of high cortisol, low testosterone, estrogens, is, is, is uh, it's, it's an epidemic.
you mentioned high intensity training just a moment ago when you were talking about Paul Larson's book. So we have a question here relating to polarized training. So the question is, would you do your math runs at low intensity and your high intensity intervals as different sessions? Or is it acceptable to do, uh, say, a 50 minute math run and then add on some intervals, high intensity intervals at the end of that session? Uh, there's a lot of different ways you can you can add high intensity training, and I was I was uh, I was very aware of something that's very important, and that's to always ask the athlete what they enjoy doing when they are are ready to do high intensity training, or if they even want to do high intensity training. Uh, the fact that seventy five percent of athletes perform a personal best in a 10K, and I, I, I measured this in 229 runners, seasoned runners, and I had them all build a base, and 75% of them uh, ran a personal best. Oh, and, and it was a 5K, actually. Um, uh, Mike Pig, uh, I worked, when I first started working with him, he was having so much fun with this aerobic base building. He started getting faster and faster. And he's, you know, he was a speed maniac. And he said, mm. this is amazing. And then uh, the time came to start racing. And I said, well, you don't, he said, well, what about high intensity stuff? I said, well, you don't, just jump into a race. And he won it. Um, he beat Mark Allen, actually. Uh, and then I said, well, you you know, you could let your race performance be your high intensity training for a while. And he would, he spent a long time not doing any high intensity training whatsoever. So I always say to an athlete, what would you like to do if you're going to do high intensity? And a lot of them know what they like. They know what they don't like. You know, I, I really hate being on the track. I really love being on the track. I love the track. I was a track and field athlete and to go on the track just to be on the track is exciting for me. Um, uh, but I would ask people what they like. You know, do you like hill repeats? Do you like, um, or if, if, if they're not sure, they say, what do you suggest? And then I would say fart lick workouts. Um, but there, there are certain things that we have to look at. First of all, you want to build your aerobic system first. That's called a base, Arthur Lydiard's term where you only train aerobically, you don't do any high intensity training because that high intensity training is a stress that can impair aerobic development. Number two, after you've built that aerobic base, which may take three, four, five, six months, um, now you're ready for some high intensity training and that workout should be preceded by a really good warm up. Now you're gonna use your aerobic system to develop or uh, you're gonna use that well-developed aerobic system to warm up your muscles so that those anaerobic fibers are well endowed with circulation, which they don't normally have. They rely on the next door neighbor aerobic slow twitch muscle fiber to share its circulation. So um, that could take 15, 20, 25, 30 minutes maybe for a cyclist who's gonna ride long, 30 minute warm up would not be unusual. And now you do your high intensity, whatever the workout is, uh, where you you train at a higher heart rate and then you slow down, you train at a higher heart rate and then you slow down. And then you, you do a cool down, which is another aerobic um, part of it. So 
in the course of a year, you might spend six months, uh, say, typically in the winter when there's not a lot of competition, building that aerobic system. And then in the spring, you start adding some high-intensity training, maybe one, two, three days a week, depending on what your life is like. If you have a full-time job and a family and a house to take care of and social obligations, how in the world are you going to fit in three high-intensity training sessions in a week, especially if you're a triathlete? So you got to put all this together and do your, um, you know, place your high-intensity training appropriately. And then uh, maybe that uh, blends in with competition, and then you go back to building a, a base again maybe uh, later in the year, and then you have another racing season, and then back to that winter base. Hmm. Okay, I think I get what then. So basically, it's what the athlete likes to do, I suppose there's nothing wrong with doing that high intensity workout at the end of a uh, a math run, but but you need to have a substantial base before you start doing exactly that. exactly. And you want to warm down. You know, you don't want to you don't want to do uh, some high intensity intervals and then uh, hop in your car and uh, drive for twenty minutes. Uh, what a terrible thing to do to your physical body. Uh, but people people do that. So uh, spend some time walking uh, and, and jogging a little bit to cool down. You you can see me laughing on that video here. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm thinking about our swim session this morning where um, we we had to do some uh, some high intensity intervals followed by some steady state work and then some more high intensity intervals and there was three 100s to do and we had about 10 minutes left and I said right I'm going to do my cool down now so I'm going to go at the back of this and the other guys are saying well no we've still got three 100s at 90% effort to do and I'm like yeah but when are you getting out well we're getting out at eight o'clock so how are you going to fit those in and do a cool down yes but we need to do the program I'm like but you need to do a cool down so anyway they went their way I went mine and in, in that situation they could get out of the pool at eight o'clock after the last uh, high intensity uh, uh, part of the, the workout and go for a walk mm. or just walk around the pool or, or, or whatever, go to a, to a stationary bike, which I don't particularly care for, but it's a good way to, to, to get a cool down. Um, I had a, I had a patient many years ago who was uh, training for the Boston marathon and um, he lived up in Vermont, which was uh, four hours away from me. And he had an appointment um, on um i don't i don't remember the details but uh he went for a 20 mile run and uh literally got in his car and drove four hours to see me got to my office and he couldn't get out of his car he was in pain i had to literally go out to his car and and apply therapies uh it, you know while he was in his car to get him out um, you know, we, we, we need to think uh, before we do these kinds of things. Let's change gear a little now then, Phil, uh, and talk about nutrition. So um, our man who started off the podcast for us with that, with that favorable comment about how um, reducing processed carbs and refined sugars has got a question. He, he's asking how, how, do, how does the body deal differently with sugars that it gets from things like berries and honey compared to how it deals with the, the sugars that are, that are available in cake and chocolate? 
because he wasn't he wasn't quite sure about the mechanism with that or where it, whether it dealt with them in the same way. If you look at the glucose that is contained in all of those foods, and if that glucose is now in the blood, we deal with it exactly the same. However, the the high uh, the highly processed uh, refined carbohydrates like white sugar and cake and uh, flour uh, and that kind of stuff, the, the, the drinks, the sodas and you know, sugary drinks, uh, when we consume those, those are called high glycemic, which means we produce more insulin when we consume them because they're not able to, they get into the body very quickly. Uh, in fact, white flour, so if we eat a, a, a piece of uh, a, a roll or a, a bagel or a piece of bread, we convert it to sugar almost immediately, and it's just almost exactly the same as eating the same amount of calories as pure sugar. So those foods have a worse effect on our metabolism because they are higher glycemic. They are highly processed. And we get a lot of it in a, in a small piece of cake compared to, say, blueberries or strawberries. Um, and when, when people need to um, make changes in their diet by eliminating uh, certain foods, it's the highly refined uh, sugars, it's the, the, the refined carbohydrates that need to be eliminated first. First of all, they don't have a lot of other nutrients other than sugar. And so they're displacing healthier uh, foods in the diet. Um, second, uh, they're affecting the insulin mechanism and cortisol a lot quicker than if you ate the same amount of um, uh, blueberries, for example. Um, as we age, uh, even, even natural carbohydrates like, like an apple sometimes is a little bit too much for people because as we age, we become more carbohydrate intolerant. We become more insulin resistant. And so by nature, we should be intuitively adjusting our diets to consume less carbohydrates, say when we're 40 or 50 compared to when we're 20. So, uh, the first thing people need to do is get rid of the junk food. There's, there's, no, there's no place for it in a healthy diet. And so the question, once you've done that, the question is how much natural, truly natural carbohydrate does your body tolerate? If you were diagnosed as a, as a diabetic, like I was, and like many people today, now they have a category of prediabetes, um, uh, those people cannot tolerate much natural carbohydrate, even though it's natural. They just don't tolerate that amount of carbohydrate because their metabolism uh, is not geared to, to deal with it very well. So they need to find the level of intake that suits their particular needs. Very, very important. So if we're getting – if we're um – less tolerance of carbohydrates as we're getting older, the, the current trend towards a low carbohydrate, higher fat diet is actually a very sensible option for people as they age. Um, but, but what I'm picking up from that there is that 
Um, when I spoke to Dan Plews, he, he was talking about how he followed a low-carb, high-fat diet in, in, to his Ironman performance last year, and he was take, consuming roughly 100 grams of carbs per day. But Dan's in his mid-30s. Somebody like myself, who's in their mid-50s, or I think you're a few years older than me, we'd probably be taking less carbohydrate now. But am I understanding it right if to say there's not really a figure? It's based on what you can tolerate as an individual? Exactly. There's no figure. Uh, Can we measure insulin resistance? Sure, if we go to a hospital and get the test. But people aren't going to do that. And they're certainly not going to do it a few times a year. Uh, to monitor themselves, they could use signs and symptoms. It's really, really quite easy considering that when you consume too much carbohydrate, too much natural carbohydrate, and let's just take out the the junk food um, automatically, but when we consume too much carbohydrate, we tend to be hungry. We tend to get bloating, intestinal bloating. Uh, we We tend to hold on to more a body fat, and if you want to know if your body fat is too high, just measure your waist and your height. Your waist should be less than half your height. It's the most accurate test. You can get a DEXA scan, but again, who's going to do that? Who should do that? Hardly anybody. Uh, on a regular basis to see that you're losing fat, measure your waist. Um, I've written a lot about that. Um, uh, So when we're consuming too much carbohydrate, and then another thing is when we're consuming too much carbohydrate, we kind of hit a plateau with our aerobic development. So we do an MAF test and we find we're running at a, you know, a seven minute pace. And we say, gee, I've been seven minutes for the last three months. Why am I hitting this plateau? Well, it's, it's worth thinking about whether you're consuming too much carbohydrate because that would be a likely reason, a very likely reason why you might hit that plateau. And I developed a test um, long ago called uh, the, the, the two-week test where people reduce their carbohydrates. Uh, they eliminate the junk food, but they reduce their natural carbohydrates significantly. They may or may not go into ketosis. Um, I do have a keto two-week test for people who think they should be in ketosis, but that's another uh, discussion. But you you take two weeks of this low, this very low carbohydrate eating style, where you eat a lot of food so that you don't get hungry, but you're not eating a lot of carbohydrate, and then you look at your body fat, your maybe even your weight. Uh, you look at your uh, hunger, uh, your bloating, and anything else you can think of. Because carbohydrates, when we're consuming too many, play a role in the production of a lot of signs and symptoms. Hypertension. If your blood pressure is above 120 over 80, you're, you're pre-hypertensive until you get to the higher levels when you're hypertensive. So if that's a problem, now you've got a really good objective measure because insulin is related to blood pressure. And when we keep uh, uh, consuming carbohydrates beyond our limit, we're producing too much insulin. And that, among other things, will uh, cause the blood pressure to drift upward. 
blood tests like um, triglycerides. You know, we should be, I like to see a person 75 or 80 uh, for triglycerides. And if they're above that, certainly if they're above 100, I think there's a carbohydrate excess consumption in, in that person. Hemoglobin A1C, which is a measure of glucose in the red blood cells, is a really good test. And so we have, we have plenty of things to, to monitor or have our doctor monitor uh, in working with us to, to do this uh, evaluation. And then after the two-week period, if your signs and symptoms are better, you say, oh, I guess I'm eating too many carbohydrates. Then the question is, well, how, what is your limit? And at that point, now you start adding back some natural carbohydrates every other meal because insulin production is not just based on the meal you're eating now but the meal you had before. Uh, every other meal you might add um, a, a small piece of fruit at lunch or maybe you add some lentils at, at dinner. And you see if those addition additions, if that, that added carbohydrate – uh, produces uh, bloating or hunger or, you know, and then you gradually experiment a little bit more. And it, by by now, you're very intuitive. By now, you knew how, you know how to, 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 to adjust your carbohydrate intake and your food intake based on meals. You know when you're satisfied as opposed to before when you're eating too much carbohydrate, you just, you just keep eating. I mean, one of the one of the symptoms of or signs of sugar addiction is consuming sugar when you're not hungry. Hmm. It's a it's a classic. Yeah, going to the uh, going to the gas station and picking up those big bag, yes. bags of chocolates, things like that when you don't need them when you've just had your dinner. So, Bill, uh, you you mentioned keto there actually. I. Uh, I had a question here about that. Somebody said, um, what's, what's if any of the differences in keto or low-carb, high-fat for, for physical performance? I think we talked about that, but um, this is more of a health-related for stabilization of calcification of coronary arteries and its implications for cardiovascular disease. Yeah, that, that is directly related. So, we, again, we can, we can go and have our calcium in, you know, measured in our arteries uh, with, with you know, certain types of um, x-ray, uh, tests, but, but the, the triglycerides in the blood and the HDL cholesterol, those two numbers, HDL should be high. I like to see it 90 or above triglycerides 80 or below. Uh, if you see that ratio, you know that there's not a calcification problem. You know that your cardiovascular risk is low regardless of your LDL or your total cholesterol. Mm. So, um, you know, look at those. Those are the modern tests that um, people who read the literature, doctors who read the literature are evaluating. They're not doing all these other crazy tests that, that at one point we thought, well, these are, these are the best tests. Well, we're, we're way, way past this idea uh, that, that, you know, we, you need to know your cholesterol number. Mm. You need to have a high HDL cholesterol and a low triglyceride. And then when you do, you know your cardiovascular risk is low and everything, including calcification, 
is not going to be a problem. If somebody had gallbladder problems, my, in, my intuition is that it would be better for them to be on a diet that is higher in fats. But, but the question is, how can a low-carb, high-fat nutrition plan be achieved when I have? To, he, he says he has to avoid fatty foods due to gallbladder problems. Well, your, your intuition is right, and it is an old treatment for gallbladder problems, eating fat, because one of the problems with gallstones uh, is that the bile is too thick, it doesn't get through the gallbladder well, and we tend to accumulate um, gallstones uh, and, and bile even in the, in the, in the gallbladder. And so uh, people on low-fat diets have this problem all the time. The, for a long time, the tradition in medicine was people with gallbladder problems need to be on a low-fat diet. Well, I saw a lot of those people, and they often got worse on a low-fat diet. Um, and so uh, we, we've learned uh, over the years that uh, adding healthy fats to the diet was important. However, the problem with the gut is that if we add refined carbohydrates, it doesn't work well. Stomach doesn't work well. The, the small intestine, the large intestine doesn't work well. Well, the liver, which is really part of the digestive system and the gallbladder is is a part of it too and so it's the carbohydrate that impairs gallbladder function and the many 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 people that i've worked with who had uh gallbladder problems or a history of gallbladder trouble uh are are no longer uh considered gallbladder patients because with their high fat so-called high-fat diet. Technically, that means your diet's more than 30% fat. Uh, the so-called high-fat diet and low-carbohydrate and no refined carbohydrate diet has allowed them to have a healthy gut, which is really what it's all about. Hmm. Maybe it's maybe it's the sort of fats he was eating where he's told to, to be low-fat. Maybe he had too many of those sort of, uh, saturated fats and not enough healthy fats. Um, well, saturated fats are very healthy, and that's, uh, th that's another thing that has gone by the wayside for people who read the literature. Uh, we're, we should not be concerned about natural saturated fats. Uh, that's why coconut oil is such a healthy fat. That's why uh, the Mediterranean diet with, the, with its monofats, which, um, you know, we have, we have that coconut oil and we have uh, some of the animal fats, very, very healthy fats. All natural fats can be healthy. It's the it's the processed ones that we need to be worried about. So when we're racing, we've been told by the research, and I'm, ne I'm never sure whether this is marketing speak, the researchers have created data to suit the marketeers and be able to sell their products. We're, we're always told that we should be consuming large quantities of carbohydrates. Um, the math training is is helping us to become more fat adapted and use the fat stores we have in our body better. When we're trying to fuel during races, are we better trying to use something that's got more fat and less carbohydrate or are we better resorting to sucrose, fructose, whatever combinations on race day only to supply exogenous carbohydrate just to maintain our blood sugar? 
Yeah, it's it's a good question, and and it's 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 one that a lot of athletes want to know, especially when you say don't eat refined carbohydrates. I'm not talking about racing necessarily, uh, but in your in your everyday meal. I want to I want to just make a correction before I finish answering this. Mm-hmm. Um, I said all natural fats are healthy. That's not true. Vegetable oil is one of the worst fats you can consume. The omega six vegetable oils like uh, corn, peanut canola, uh, mm. which is called rapeseed, um, peanut oil, uh, all the omega-6 fats, um, they're very dangerous because they drive the inflammatory pathway, which is uh, not something anyone wants to do, especially an athlete. Um, going, going back to, can I just interject there, Phil? I was listening to Kate, Dr. Kate Shanahan talking about that the other day. She was, she's done this um, new book called Deep Nutrition, and she was talking at quite some length about the, um, you know, the vegetable fats that you talk about, the canola oils, and the things we've we've been encouraged to use, and saying you definitely need to keep away from those types of things. So I can maybe, um, I presume you've heard of Kate Shanahan, have you? Yeah, Seems, sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. This, this is. Um this is fairly old information, but you know the the marketing of these oils has been so intense for so many years. Um, back in the seventies, when I uh, mentioned this in a lecture, I I got a letter from my 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 state licensing board saying that someone had complained hmm. about the information I was teaching. And they said, there's nothing we can do about it. But, you know, uh, the complaint was that you said omega-6 vegetable oils are unhealthy, blah, blah, blah. I mean, this is how well marketing works. Uh, it, it, you know, they, they can take something that they're selling and make it sound scientific despite the research. Um, and it's it's. It's very sad, and you're you're finally seeing this vegetable oil issue uh, becoming more and more accepted um, by the broad audience. Um, mm. So it, it's a very very important issue. Okay. Um, in terms of race day nutrition, yeah, the yeah. most important thing about race day nutrition is all that we've talked about up till now. You want to you wanna wake up on race morning being the healthiest athlete you could be, and that means being a great fat burner. And if you're a great fat burner, you're going to have a lot of the energy you need for your race without consuming anything because now you're able to access your fat stores, whether you're a lean person or not, uh, to the extent that you have a tremendous reserve of, of fat to convert to energy for your race. Now the question is, uh, you're going you're gonna to maybe consume breakfast. Uh, so now you're going to get some energy from that. And I recommend uh, the same healthy breakfast you might have on a normal training day or even a, a, a work day. You want to have healthy food. And you want to, especially on race day, you want to chew it well or blend it. What an ideal way to, to get uh, breakfast on race days to put it in a blender. Um, but then during the event itself, the bottom line is what works best for you. And when people really try to figure out 
the things in training that they tolerate, that they feel more energized from, that they don't have intestinal distress from, that they can stomach well. Um, it's usually a combination of fat, protein, and carbohydrate. The carbohydrate should be monosaccharide sugars. We don't want to consume sucrose or uh, uh, double sugars or starches, which are more than two sugars, because they have to be digested. And that digestion begins in the mouth. And we're gobbling down this liquid sugar and we're not uh, relying on the amylose in our saliva to help begin that digestive process. So we have a lot of undigested sugar in the gut, and that's what causes the bloating that athletes in a race are most annoyed by. So uh, fruit juice is a, you know, fruit juice is made of separate glucose and fructose. Um, it's the one I recommend people experiment with first. Honey uh, is the same thing. The bees have digested the sugar for us, so now we're getting separate uh, monosaccharide sugars that we don't have to digest. We can use them immediately for energy. So maybe a solution that you experiment with, um, you know, with some uh, some honey, some and you can make a goo out of this. Some honey, some some protein, maybe some egg powder, and some some fat. Experiment, and you'll guaranteed you'll figure it out. Uh, almond butter works well, um, but you want to figure it out before your race. You don't want to get to race day, stand there at the at you know in the transition and say, "Hey, what are you going to have during the race?" Oh, can I borrow some of that? <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and you know, a lot of people do that. Mm. I, I just, the histories I've heard uh, about that item in particular is you know it's just. It's sad that people haven't figured it out by race day, and you got plenty of time to, to do that. Well, or they go to the race and they see something new in the expo, so they think, oh, yes, the, the marketing seems good for that. I'll try that on race day. Yep, it's free. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's free. Yeah, they've got that available for you on the, uh, <laughs> on the feed station, so help yourself. Yeah. Hey, listen, Phil, as always, you've been an absolute font of knowledge on so many subjects, and I can... I know why you're our most popular guest. Really, I do. It's uh, it's amazing the stuff that you that you have inside that head of yours, and uh, I know that there's a lot of the listeners are, are slowly integrating these lifestyle choices and training methodologies into their into their own routines and, and seeing the benefit. Um, and I've I've made some summaries actually, and to be honest, it's remarkably simple. Um, really. You started off with discipline, so we need to have discipline. I think that probably means that there are no shortcuts, and we need to apply this many times over many years in order intelligently. to intelligently. Yeah, intelligently. Um, if you can train easy, uh, you can avoid injury. That promotes consistency, and we know that consistency is the number one way to to get fitter and get the results you want. Um, you've got to be able to listen to your body. Strangely lacking these days in this modern society with all these new gadgets that are supposed to do stuff for you. Um, we need to place a great deal of emphasis on recovery. And yet again, I think just about every podcast I do now, the conversation about sleep and how it's underrated comes up. Um, so eventually people will get the message. Um, and, and I think finally, we just need to eat real food. 
Um, How simple does it get, you know, and, and, and real food is not junk food. Uh, we, we're, we're so inundated with uh, advertising uh, about junk food and junk food is everywhere and it's cheap. Go to the most remote places in India um, and, and China and you'll, you know, you'll see a fast food restaurant. Uh, it's, it's really sad. And so the junk food is, is got to be uh, taken away and we need to, to learn how to uh, find and prepare real food. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm shocked sometimes still. Uh, and, and I, and I've, I've observed this my whole adult <clears throat> life. I'm, I'm at, at the supermarket, uh, and I've got a bunch of, uh, vegetables and, um, I put the broccoli down and, uh, the woman looks at it and says, what is this? It's, it's really sad that we don't know what real food even looks like, let alone what it tastes like or how delicious it could be. So yeah, eat real food. Your experience there echoes one I had in the, uh, in the store the other day. I placed all of my vegetables and uh, my items for my food that I was going to make over the next few days. And she looked at me and she said, oh, you eat healthily, don't you? And I'm thinking, yeah, but everybody should be eating like this. But it turns out that I'm actually the exception in the store, not the rule. Yeah. Well, you should have said, do you say to people, boy, you eat a lot of junk food? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Hey, we've got, we've got a weirdo here. He's eating real food. <laughs> That's exactly what she was saying. That's exactly it. Yeah. Hey, listen, Phil. Thanks so much for coming on the show again. I, I, we've talked a lot about some some health issues there, and I'd love to get you back on to talk uh, uh, separate from sport and talk about some of the ways in which we can just lead healthier lives. I think and, and expand on some of that stuff. But that's that's for another podcast. But for now, thank you so much for being our our guest on our hundredth uh, episode. It's been fantastic, and uh, I'm sure that it'll. Um, lead to a whole load of um, extra questions thank you simon appreciate it phil bye for now and listeners thanks very much once again for joining us it's been a hundred great episodes it's gone really quickly and i appreciate you being here look forward to catching up with you again next week bye for now once again thank you to dr phil maffetone and all of the other guests who have helped us to reach this milestone today to listeners Thank you for helping me to get the first 655,000 downloads. I still have twin goals of 500 episodes and that magic 1 million downloads to aim for. So I hope that you listeners will be sticking around for quite some time to go. Please feel free to share with your buddies so that we can get there perhaps a little bit quicker and bump up that weekly average. And to make sure you don't miss any episode in the future, please go to iTunes, search for High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast and click the subscribe button and while you're there please feel free to leave us a review on apple podcasts you can find a link in the show notes below and that will help us to spread the news about the podcast and reach those goals a lot quicker now this podcast my website and all of my regular newsletters focus on the goal of helping you to achieve peak human and athletic performance by interpreting the science and then for me to translate it into easy to understand lessons for you and if you enjoy this podcast I've created a membership program which allows me to provide more in-depth exclusive content and programs so that you can take your performances to the next level if you'd like to learn more and access these member only benefits please visit my website simonward.co.uk and click on the work with me button right that's all for this week 
I will see you on the next episode as we move into number 301.